Did you know? The tradition of celebrating Easter is over 2,000 years old. It's the time we take to remember the death and celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. But there's another tradition that Jesus himself participated in, the commemoration of the Passover. To get a better understanding of its significance, we have to go back 3,000 years. At this point in time, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God sends a guy that you've probably heard of by the name of Moses to free them. When Pharaoh rejects Moses' request to release the Israelites, God unleashes 10 plagues. These include turning water into blood, frogs, lice and gnats, thunderstorms of hail and fire, and three days of darkness, just to name a few. The last of the plagues was the final warning to Pharaoh. The angel of death was going to come through Egypt and kill the firstborn son of every household. But God made a way. He commanded Moses to tell the Israelites to cover the frame above their doors with the blood of a perfect lamb, one without blemish. Then the angel of death would know that they were faithful and would pass over those families and their children would be spared. After this plague, Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Israelites go free. And so for thousands of years, people have continued to celebrate and remember the Passover. All right, welcome to Easter of Revolution. You guys doing well? Good. Yeah. Man, we are excited to celebrate together in person. As you know, if you were part of our church, we didn't get to celebrate Easter in person last year. So we're so excited to do that. And all of you that are gathering together with our locations, uh, in, in our physical locations in Canton and Jasper or our online campus as well, thank you for gathering with us this Easter. We were very, very excited, like I said, to celebrate together to celebrate what Easter is all about. And we're going to look at a text today in John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And if you don't have one, don't worry about it. We have the verses here on the screen. And we're going to look at a story. We've just been teaching through the gospel according to John for the last several weeks, if you've been here. And we're going to look at a story at the second part of John chapter 2 that on the surface, you may not think has a lot to do with Easter, but it has everything to do with Easter, as hopefully I will get to show you. So before we jump into the text, as always, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time, all right? Pray with me. Father, we want to stop and pause um, and just take a moment and recognize the fact that we are about to look at your word, and your word has the power, God, to create worlds, to generate life, and, and God, I pray today as we look at your word that that is what you would do. God, I know there are people listening or watching today that may don't know you. Maybe they, they don't have a relationship with you, God, and that's great that they're here, but we pray, God, that you would create belief. And those of us who do believe, God, I pray that you would help us to understand even deeper by the text that we're going to look at today how amazing you are and how you've been working all things together for our good. And as we celebrate Easter, God, I pray that you would remind us of just the reality that it creates in our life. And God, I pray that you would help me to communicate this truth in a way that not only honors you, God, but is helpful so that we can all 
leave today knowing not only who you are, but better understand what it is that you did and what you are doing in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in verse 13. And so like I said, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with this. If not, you got the verses on the screen. And this uh, story that happens in the second part of John chapter two is a rather famous story. In fact, it occurs in all four of the gospel accounts. And if you've been around church before, you may have heard this story, but hopefully we'll look at it from a perspective that maybe you haven't thought about before. So verse 13, it says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, which is why we showed you the video to help you understand what Passover is. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So just a little context, this festival of Passover happened every year, and the Jewish people were commanded to come back to Jerusalem and have this celebration to commemorate what God had done in freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And so this was this seven-day celebration. They would come together, and Jerusalem sits on the top of Mount Moriah, so it's literally a, a couple thousand feet above sea level. And so wherever the Jewish people were, if they weren't living in and around Ju Jerusalem, there, there's a lot of them that had to kind of scattered out in different places. They were to travel back. So literally, millions of people would travel back for these holidays, and they were supposed to bring with them their sacrifices. So they depending upon you know, their life, and they would bring oxen or goats or pigeons or doves. And so they would want to bring those with them, but you can imagine that traveling hundreds of miles up thousands of feet, that it might not be a very good thing or be a, a tough thing to carry the sacrifices with you. And so what began to happen is they, especially the people who couldn't afford servants or people to help them bring the sacrifices with them, is they would travel to Jerusalem and then they would buy it when they got there. And so this whole practice kind of sprang up to where people were like, oh, millions of people are coming in and we have an opportunity to sell these things to them. But as you're going to see in just a moment, the, the idea turned into really more of a money-making idea to say, oh, we got millions of people coming in. We have an opportunity to sell stuff to them as they go into the temple. The best way to think about this is, remember when we used to go to sporting events? Man, those were great days, weren't they? And you would go to a sporting event and almost invariably, especially at the old Brave Stadium, Turner Field, where, where we would go to baseball games and we'd have to park like a mile and a half out as you're walking into the stadium. I'll never forget, especially when my son Jackson, when he was younger, he would go and he would want to, you know, invariably he would get like dehydrated along the way. He was like, dad, I'm dying of thirst. And so he would need some water. And then you wind up paying like five bucks for a bottle of water. I don't remember how much it was. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I just remember it was like, I could have bought a whole case at Walmart for about the same price. And I'm like, Jackson, why didn't you bring a water? I don't know, dad, I'm thirsty. And then we get closer and he would want, you know, some Braves apparel or some shirt. I'm like, Jackson, I'm not going to pay these prices because I can get multiple shirts at Walmart for that same price. And we should have bought that before we came. Or, dad, I don't want a foam finger, right? This whole idea is as you got closer to the stadium, enterprising people were there selling stuff. And it's that kind of atmosphere. It's that kind of idea, like literally millions of people coming in. And so they were selling what they needed for sacrifice. And you also had to pay a temple tax. And so there was money changers there. And if you've ever, remember we did international travel? Man, that was great too. Um, when you would travel internationally, you would have to change out coins. 
Again, a very common occurrence, and you want to change it out, not coins. You would change out bills, and you'd have to have some crisp, you know, $100 bills, and you would change it out, and there's an exchange rate depending upon our currency and their currency. And so the same kind of thing. People are traveling, traveling all over back into Jerusalem, and so they had to make sure that they had money there to change it out so that they had the proper thing to pay for the tax. So this whole thing is going on during this seven-day celebration. And again, on the surface, it's not in and of itself bad. But what began to happen, instead of providing opportunities for people to meet with God, enterprising people were saying, oh, this is an opportunity to make money. This is an opportunity for us to take advantage of a lot of times, especially poorer people who couldn't afford to bring their own animals, and now they had to pay. Well, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he ain't having it. He gets upset, and that's what I want us to look at next. Look at verse 15. It says, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I don't know what your childhood was like and, and how you were disciplined by your parents, but there was plenty of times where I got spankings and whippings, and there were times where my mom would utter those dreadful words, just wait till your daddy gets home. I hated that. And there were times where my dad, I mean, he just had this almost felt like supernatural power to get his belt off of his pants and onto my backside in like one fell swoop, especially my brother and sister, man, they were really messed up. Not me. I mean, I was great, but on occasion when it did happen, right? But here's what I can say. I've never had anybody mad enough at me that they actually made something to whip me with. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just grab a whip. It says he make, made one, making a whip of cords. Now, I told you this account happens in all four Gospels, but in the other three Gospels, it happens at a different period in time than what John is saying here. The other three have it when Jesus is about to get arrested in this last week of Passover when Jesus is in Jerusalem. And it happens when the day after he goes into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, which was Palm Sunday, which happened last Sunday is when Jesus goes in and they're all like, Hosanna, you're king. And then they kill him, you know, six days later. And, and, and this idea is, or one theory is, when Jesus rode in on a donkey, he might have taken some of the leather from the straps of riding in. I don't know, could have. John has it at a different point in time, though. He has it happening earlier in Jesus's ministry, which just could mean one of two things. John just put it in a different place in the story. Doesn't mean that they're not saying the same thing. They are. Or it could mean that it happened at two different times, that Jesus actually did this twice. Either way, I'm fine with it. doesn't really matter theologically because the point is not how often he did it, but why he did it. That's the point. And what we know is he makes a whip. So we don't know if it comes from the leather from riding in the donkey. It could have come from the leather from his shoes. I don't know. But here's what we know. Jesus is upset. Makes a whip, drives them all out of the temple, and then says, enough. Overturns their tables. And, and look at the next couple of verses. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples, verse 17, remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He was quoting Psalm 69, 9. We'll come back to that verse in a little while. So remember that. So the disciples remember, again, we don't know if it's happening then or if it happens later when John is writing this, but they remembered the psalmist, Psalm 69, 9, where he says, zeal for your house has consumed me. So they're watching this thing play out and Jesus is obviously passionate. And so anger in and of itself is not a sin because the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. God has holy and righteous anger or passion or zeal. And so Jesus shows up to this scene and he is not liking what is going on. But what I want you to understand is the reason why is there's multiple levels as to why Jesus got upset. One is obvious, and I'm going to point that out. And then second one may not be as obvious, but I think his answers help us understand it. One is obvious is that he knows that people are there making money. And he doesn't want people to take this opportunity of meeting with God, of coming to the temple, of making sacrifices for their sins. He doesn't want people to use an opportunity of meeting God as a way to make money. And so he says, don't turn my father's house into a house of trade. Now, the Greek word there for trade is literally emporium, where we get our English word emporium. So I don't know if you've ever been to an emporium before, but that's the same word. It means trade or marketplace. Another word in this translation was bazaar. And I'm like, oh, I've been to some bazaars before. You ain't lived unless you've gone to a church bazaar, baby. And if you don't know anything about that, then you missed church in the 90s, all right? I went a couple times with my mama. We didn't go to church there. She just went for the crafts. I mean, I got several. Remember those rubber band guns? Church bazaars, baby, all right? And so this idea was there's this marketplace of trade going on. But again, it's not just people selling their goods and services, you know, as a way to, you know, raise money for a mission trip or something like that. They're actually making the, the whole enterprise of meeting with God based upon making money. And so Jesus obviously is upset about that. And that is on one level, that is true. But I think there's another level of what Jesus is getting at here. There's a deeper level. And anytime you need to know this, anytime God is operating in the Bible, it's always happening on levels. There's always deeper levels of meaning to what he is doing. And so we kind of have to do the hard work of digging down into, oh, it, it, this meant this, and the, oh, what is this about? There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of prefiguring. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of what the Bible calls shadows going on. And so I, I think there's a deeper level of meaning that Jesus is getting at here. And I think we can get that by how he answers this question. Look at these next two verses. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the Jewish people a lot of times get a bad rap because obviously they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't understand the story. But in this scenario, I don't think that they are wrong in asking Jesus, hey, 
By what signs are you doing this? Because ultimately what they're asking Jesus, by what authority do you have to come into here and our house of worship, our place of worship, and overturn all this stuff? I mean, just imagine, I mean, we gather together in two locations physically and then online. Imagine if somebody can come up on a Thursday night or a Sunday and they just walk in and start flipping over signs and flipping over tables and they walk into our auditorium, and start flipping over chairs. I mean, we have a lot of security team people that would have something to say about that, right? Which if you don't know, we do have security team people, you know, deputies here and, and our mission statement is love Jesus, grow people. But our security team statement is love Jesus, watch people, Right. And so I think it's important to keep people safe, but just again, imagine that if somebody shows up in one of our gatherings and starts flipping stuff over, we would ask, by whose authority are you doing this? So I don't think it's a bad question that the Jewish people ask because they're in charge of the religious ceremonies that are going on there. In fact, it's very similar to how it operates today if you've ever been to Israel. And if you haven't, hopefully when this whole crazy COVID season is at least enough to where we can travel again, we want to take trips back to Israel because you get a a deeper understanding of what was going on. But when you go up to the Temple Mountain, and it's like this today, instead of Roman soldiers, what it would have been like when Jesus was there, it is the nation of Israel's soldiers. And so they're there kind of keeping the peace But now you don't just have the Jewish religious leaders, you also have the Muslim religious leaders because there's two religions now. And then you have a lot of Christians that go up there. And so there are days literally where things get so tense on the Temple Mount, you can't go up there. By God's grace, when we were there, we were able to go up there that day. So just imagine this scene. The Roman soldiers are there trying to keep the peace. The Jewish people are there. Here comes Jesus walking up. And he drives them all out. I mean, he makes a whip and he's like, get out of here. Making my father's house into a bazaar. And they're kind of looking at your father's house. Who gave you the authority to do this? And then Jesus answers profoundly. And this is the deeper level I'm getting at. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Just imagine when they got that question. And I mean, they got that answer. They're like, how does that give you the authority to turn over? the? What are you talking about? In fact, look at how they respond. They said, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, here's the clincher of the whole thing. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, historically speaking, we know that this temple took 46 years to build. The Bible confirms it. History confirms it. Because if you don't know anything about the history of the Jewish people or just human history in general, Solomon built the first temple in 1000 BC, and then it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. And so the first temple was destroyed, and they were sent to exile. And then the story of Nehemiah, he comes back and builds the walls. Then the story of Ezra comes back and rebuilds the people of God on the word of God. And then when the Roman occupation happens, there's this guy named Herod. He's called Herod the Great. And the reason is not because he was a great dude. He was a psychopath, but he liked to build great buildings. And so he wants to rebuild the temple, and he does. But this time, he flattens the top of the mountain, expands it way bigger, and builds it back so impressively that it became kind of a modern marvel, and it took 46 years to build. 
Just think about that, 46 years. I mean, that's longer than I've been alive. We get mad if something takes 46 months to build. And here's Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. Three days. But here's the deeper level that they didn't understand and what I want us to see. He wasn't referring to that temple. In fact, later when Jesus is crucified, the religious leaders bring the charge against him that he said he was going to destroy the temple. But look at his words. He never said he was going to destroy the temple. What he did say in Matthew 24 is there's not going to be a stone left on top of each other, but he was referring to when the Romans would destroy the second temple, and they did in 70 AD. And when you go there, you can see on one corner where the stones were actually thrown over. They've dug it up, and the stones are still there stacked one upon the other, and that's a direct result of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24. It's amazing. But he never said he was going to destroy that temple. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. What was he saying to them? You're going to destroy my body. You're going to kill me, but I'll raise it up in three days. And here's the deeper level that Jesus was getting at and why he was so passionate about what was happening in his father's house. There was a shift that was being made. See, I told you everything that God does happens on multiple levels. See, when God freed them in the Passover and they came out of Egypt, the presence of God went with them and it went like a pillar of, of, of cloud during the day, right? And so as it, as it moved around, that's where the presence of God was. And what they would do is they would build what was called the tabernacle, which is a fancy way of saying big tent. And so they would build this tent and that's where the presence of God would dwell, Right In the Ark of the Covenant, when the, when the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and everything that God had commanded Moses to do. So everywhere his presence went, the tabernacle went, and that happened until they moved into Jerusalem and the temple replaced the tabernacle. And the temple became the place where the presence of God and the humanity met, where God and, and, and humans met, where heaven and earth came together. And it was at the inner courts of the temple that's called the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in once a year and offer the sacrifice of blood covering over the Ark of the Covenant because the commandments were inside, which was a way to say, my blood is covering over your inability to keep these commandments. So that was the whole sacrificial system and why everybody was there for Passover. And what Jesus is saying is a new temple is here. Because John tells us in John 1.14, and this is what's crazy, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word there, dwelt, literally means tabernacled or templed. So the word became flesh and built a temple, tabernacled among us. So what Jesus is getting at here to the religious leaders is like, listen, you guys have set up this whole system because God commanded you to, which is good, but I'm here to replace that. I'm here to replace the old temple sacrificial system because now the blood that will be shed is not the blood of that lamb, but the blood of this lamb. And my blood will cover the sacrifices for your sin, not once a year, but once for all. 
So this system is going to be replaced by a new system, and this system will be based upon the temple of my body, not about a place, but about a person. That's the deeper level of why Jesus is overturning the table. Because see, here's what you need to know. The phrase overturn literally means, yes, physical tables that he overturned, but it also means upsetting the systems. Overturning the systems, the belief systems, the practices, the customs of the way things were done. So Jesus wasn't just there to overturn some physical tables. He was there to overturn the entire religious system. And that's how his disciples understood it. Look at verse 22. When, therefore, not if, when, when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, Old Testament, capital S, scripture, and the word that Jesus had spoken. They saw it all come together when he was raised from the dead. See, church, here's what you need to know, and this is how this has everything to do with Easter. Jesus walking in and overturning the tables, Jesus instituting a new system, Jesus dying on the cross, all of that is for naught if he doesn't raise from the dead. Because if he doesn't raise from the dead, then you don't actually know that it worked. You don't actually know that, yes, this is the new way. He did come back from the dead, and now he is not dead. He's alive right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. If that didn't happen, then it doesn't validate everything that he said. And this is the part I want you to really see. Because there may be some of you here today, you're not a believer in Jesus, and that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. You may be an atheist or an agnostic, or you don't believe anything, and you think, man, there's no way that I can know. But here's what I want you to see. You still operate by some system. You still have some belief system, some way that you're living your life. You're like, well, I just don't believe there's a God. Okay. I don't believe that there's a heaven and a hell. I don't believe anything happens after we die. Okay. But here's what I'd like to submit to you. How do you know that? But let's at least be intellectually honest enough to admit it's a guess. You want to know why? Because I haven't died yet. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. I haven't died yet. And when I die, how do I know that there is a heaven or there is a hell? Well, I can only know if I believe the one who actually came back to tell us. See, I want you to hear me, Christians. Our faith is not built on a fairy tale. It's built on a fact. Something happened. And the something that happened was he was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, it validated everything that he said. See, the new system that Jesus was building was saying, listen, the way to get to God is not booking a plane ticket and going to a place and buying some sacrifices. The way to get to God is believing in a person. The person who died in your place for your sin as the sacrificial lamb, which is what Passover was all about, and then was ro risen again on the third day, just like he said he would. So if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, I want you to understand something. Your entire belief system is based upon, I think so. But the Christian belief system is entirely based upon, no, we know so. 
And I don't mean that in a way to be rude or forceful. I mean that in a way because I want you to actually think the religious system. And you're like, I'm not religious. You are. You just don't realize it because you have a system. You have a way of life. You have faith. And all I'm saying is, how do you know that that system will actually work in the end? And that's what I want you to really think about what you believe. And hopefully the same result like verse 23 will happen. Look at this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So if you want a reference verse, I don't have it on the screen, but Acts 2, 22, Peter stands up at the first sermon and he says his signs manifested who he was. See, the signs were always pointing to something. So when the Jewish leaders asked Jesus, by what sign are you doing this? He's saying, you want a sign? I'll show you a sign. I'm coming back. The sign is you're going to destroy this temple, but I'm going to raise it up again in three days. And so the greatest miracle that has ever been accomplished in human history is Jesus coming back from the dead. And even historians outside of the Bible can't deny that it happened. They just can't explain it without actually saying it was a miracle. Because I don't know if you know this, that doesn't happen to most people. But then look at the last two verses of John chapter 2. And I, I got to be honest with you. When I was laying this message out, I was like, do I want to do these verses this week? Because it, on the surface, it doesn't feel like it makes sense to the stories. Let me read them to you and explain what I mean. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. The word entrust, the same Greek word there, pastuo, is believe, believe in. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now think about that verse for a second in context of Jesus overturning the tables and driving people out with a whip. Why did John put that in there? And I don't know if you read your Bible like this, but you should. Why is that there? Because remember, John is writing this for the express purpose, he tells us in John 20, for you to believe. That's why he wants you to do, to believe. So why did he put these two verses in the story right here? On multiple levels, this is what I think. One, he's saying, Jesus knew what they were doing. When Jesus goes and overturns the tables, he knew. He knew what was in their heart. He knew that they didn't really want to help people meet God. They were just there for their own business sake. And people still do that in church today. They just come to network because it's good for business especially in the South, right? I want to be seen as a God-fearing man. All right, that's great. But Jesus knows your heart. He knows why you're here and why you're not here. And this is where you're like, I thought you wanted me to believe. This isn't helping your argument, Pastor. Well, I think it will help my argument if we get to the second level. Jesus also knew what was in us and therefore he knew what was not in us. What was not in us? The ability to actually get to God. He knew that we couldn't do enough. He knew that the entire sacrificial system that was set up was never enough. Now he set it up, but he set it up as a shadow, as a prefiguring, as a foreshadowing of what he would do so that you would understand a sacrifice had to be made because God is holy and we sinned against him. But he knew that you and I would never have the ability to actually keep the law. 
This is why John says in John 1 that, that grace upon grace, and we talked about that a few weeks ago if you were here, grace instead of grace, that system and that law was grace, but he knew that we could never keep it without more grace. And so that's why he came, because he knew what was in us and he knew what was not in us. And so now I want you to think back on the story in light of that. Jesus knows what was in you and yet he still died for you. Jesus knew what was not in you. See, I know somebody really loves me if they know what's in me and they stay anyway. I know somebody really loves me if they know what's really in me and they love me anyway. And that's the context of why Jesus, don't miss this, gets so passionate. Remember that verse, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house consumed me. Let me read it to you again. But this time I want to highlight the second part of the same verse. Gosh, your Bible's so amazing. Why did they quote Psalm 69, 9 in John 1, 17? Look at the rest of the verse. I have it here on the screen. For zeal for your house has consumed me. There's the first part. Here's the second part. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is the verse that his disciples remembered. Why did they remember it? It wasn't just because he overturned some tables. It's because he set up a new system where the sins of humanity didn't fall down on the lamb in the temple, but fell down on the lamb who was the temple. That is the new system that Jesus set up. And that's why he was so passionate because he knew that you and I could never do enough to get to God. And so God came to us. That's the story of the gospel. And the word there, reproach, just is another word of saying sin. So it reads like this. Zeal for his house consumed him because the sins of those who had sinned against God fell on him. That word there, fall, means to allocate to or be assigned to. And so here's what I want you to see. Why was Jesus passionate about them making it a house of trade? Because they had the wrong kind of trade in mind. It wasn't you're coming and exchanging money for a sacrifice. It is that you're coming and giving your sin and receiving righteousness in Jesus. This is a whole different kind of trade. Are you with me? This is a whole different type of system that Jesus was about to set up. That's why he got passionate. So here's what I want you to see. And I don't know if you noticed, but I got this whip behind me. So this is what Jesus makes when he walks in. And he sees what's going on and he gets passionate about it. And he starts driving them out. He says, get out of my house. I'm done with this system. You guys leave. And yes, I know you're afraid that I might hit myself, but I'm a pro at this. I don't know if you can tell. So he's driving everybody out. There it goes. He's saying, get out of my house. This is not the system that I am here to set up. And he drives everybody out. And then he walks around to the money changers and he pours out their coins and he says, this is not what is going to buy you freedom from the oppression of your sins. And then he flips over the tables. He says, this is not the system that I am here to set up. And you think about that and you're like, whoa, Jesus, what is up with you? I want you to understand something. Jesus gets really upset when people put things in the way of getting to God. 
So Jesus came and overturned all the tables. Why? Because he wasn't just overturning physical tables. He was upsetting an entire system of how to get to God. Let me show you what I mean really quick. First Peter chapter one. I have these verses on the screen as well. Verse 18 and 19. This is how Peter understood it. A disciple who would have seen all of this happen. And this is what he said. Knowing that you were ransomed. The word there, ransom, means to be liberated, freed, rescued. Now listen to this. From an oppressive situation. Jesus understood that that system was oppressive. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things. Check this. Such as silver and gold. This is not how you get to God. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hello, Passover. See, what Peter understands, it's what John understood and what all of his disciples understood and what I'm hoping today you and I will understand, that he did this for you. Look at the next two verses. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God had this plan set in motion long before you and I ever even sinned, but was made manifest in the last times. Look at this next phrase. For the sake of you. For the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Now here's the whole clincher. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. See, we use hope in English like, man, I hope this happens. And it's not a confident expectation. It's like a wish. But the biblical word here in Greek for hope goes way beyond a wish. It means a confident expectation, a certainty that is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And here's the whole argument. How can you and I know that the new system that Jesus set up works? Because he came back from the dead. If he didn't come back from the dead, you can't know. And if you believe in, if you pastuo, if you place your faith and trust in him, you can know that it will work for you too. Why? Because what happened to him will happen to you. And that's what I'm trying to get you to see. And so when we think about this, you need to think about this on this level. How is your system working? How's your system working? See, it'd be real easy to just think about this from a, a standpoint of, yeah, religious people that have set up systems as that's how we get to God. That's the problem in the world today. And, and I want you to hear me say this. I'm a pastor of a local church, and I, I agree with you. The systems that churches and denominations and other belief systems that they have set up has been great cause for great pain for so many people. Because the idea of, well, you got to dress this way. You got to talk this way. You got to be good. None of that has anything to do with God. 
And we would say things in church like cleanliness is next to godliness. That ain't in the Bible nowhere. God helps those who helps themselves. <laughs> those people don't exist. No, God helps those who have no shot at helping themselves. God helps those whose lives are a mess and a wreck. So I'll give it to you. It is fair to judge the church in, in the sense of saying, we shouldn't set up those systems that's keeping people from getting to God. And here at Revolution Church, we try to be as... Um, proactive as we can to try to make sure there's no systems set up that are keeping people from getting to Jesus. We don't care how you look, how you talk, where you come from, who your mama or your daddy is. We want to do everything we can to get you to Jesus. But there's a second level you need to think about this on. Because see, again, if you just leave today and you're like, that is right, that pastor is preaching, church is the problem. then you would miss it. Remember I asked you, how is your system working? See, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. See, it's not just that churches set up systems. Families do too. In fact, the family was the very first system that ever existed. The very first structure, the very first unit that God created. And it wasn't very long before that family became dysfunctional. So what systems have you inherited from your family? Ways of thinking, behaving, belief systems. So you may have grown up in a religious system and you thought that you were taught that your family said, you got you to have all this stuff together. You can't listen to music unless it's Christian. You can't wear clothes unless it's Christian, right? Like there's all these things that we set up that we make mountains out of molehills and we miss the whole point. So you may have grown up in a religious system and you've walked away from it because you're like, I don't want any of that. But there's maybe some of you here that you didn't inherit a religious system, but you inherited one that was just as useless because that's what the word futile means, useless. Maybe it was irreligious. And you thought, no, 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 I'm going to do everything that I can to get away from God. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to take the younger brother mentality. I'm going to take all my money and run and live it up. Well, have you done that long enough to realize that that system doesn't work either? See, it's all useless. And Jesus came to overturn those tables as a way to show you there's only one system that works not only now for life, but eternally. See, that's the real clincher. What system can give you joy not only now, but for all eternity? What belief system can give you peace, shalom, wellness, wholeness in every area of life? The only system that beat death and that is alive right now and experiencing all those things. So you may be here today and you've never trusted Jesus. And I want you to understand something. He did this for the sake of you. He overturned the system. 
He got mad because it was keeping you from him. So today you'll have the opportunity to trust in Jesus, place your faith and trust in him, and then you can have the hope of knowing that he raised from the dead, so will you. But there's some of you here today, you believe in Jesus already. You've trusted in Jesus. You've seen him overturn the tables in your life. But if you're anything like a lot of church people, what happens is, is you kind of just over time set those systems back up. And you're like, well, I, I know God loves me, but I still got to do good, right? I still got to make sure it's like people coming over to my house, even though it's a mess, I got to make them think that it's not a mess because it's all in the closet now, <laughs> right? And, and this is how a lot of us live our Christian lives. Oh, my life's not a mess. Isn't this so awesome? And we resurrect the table of perfection. And we don't want to go to a church where we're actually honest about our struggles. We're like, no, 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 my, my marriage is fine. Don't look at this. Look at this. No, I, I don't need to go to a group and actually confess my sins and go to see a counselor. I mean, I'll play, pay for Netflix every month, but not counseling. I'm not that messed up. Are you tired of playing those games? I don't know about you, man. That's exhausting. Keeping up appearances. Maybe some of us, what's keeping us from God that Jesus wants to overturn is the, the system of shame that you've developed. Oh, you, you got a shame system in your brain. It's always a shoulda, a coulda, why did I? You got a system of guilt. Not only you shame yourself, you're guilty. You don't deserve it. You never deserved it. He knows what's in you and he did it anyway. Are you set up again that system of perfection? And we got a lot of church people walking around with a big old mess, trying to be perfect, just carrying a bunch of shame and guilt. Let me ask it to you, like, why in the world would you set back up tables that Jesus overturned? So I don't know where you are today, but I'm going to close with this. Whether you've never trusted in Jesus before, or you have trusted in Jesus before, the message is today, keep believing. So those of you that have never trusted in Jesus, in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to do that for the first time and be saved. But those of you that have trusted in Jesus, let this Easter be a reminder that if he turned them over, just trust him that he knows better than you do, that they need to stay knocked down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life that you sent Jesus to get to us. He was so passionate about the things that were keeping us from getting to you that he instituted an entirely new system. Now, not one based upon our actions, but one based upon his, his sacrifice for us, his death and burial and resurrection for us, for our sake. 
And God, I pray right now, if there's anybody who's never trusted in Jesus, that you would save them right now and that they would believe in him. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Jesus, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. But it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place for my sin. Thank you that he overturned the system and sacrificed himself for me. I confess I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me. And I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just pray to trust Jesus with me, I want you to just do one thing. If you would just simply lift your hand up, if you just trusted Jesus, thank you. Go ahead and lift it up. Man, this is the greatest day of your life. We just want to celebrate with you. Thank you. Just lift it up. You are now a new person in Christ. You have been set free from the system of sin and death. And now in Jesus, you have been made new. Anybody else? You can just, we just have men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Thank you. In just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to give us your information, what we call a digital connection card, so we can just follow up with you. We're not going to come to your house or anything like that. We just want to know who you are. But then those of us who have trusted in Jesus, I pray that this Easter will be a reminder to you that Jesus still loves you enough to overturn the belief systems that maybe you have resurrected that are not of him. And so what tables in your life does Jesus need to overturn? I know what they are for me. Believe in, you don't need to be saved again. You just need to believe deeper in him that he knows what he's doing and trust him. Trust him with your marriage. Trust him with your life. Be honest. Don't play games. Father, thank you for loving us. There is no message like the gospel. There is no system on the planet that is better than Jesus because he's the only one who made a way because he is the way. He is the temple. He is the life. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, church.